So we have Bart Beatty talking comics for the Professor Latinx videocast. Welcome, Bart. Thanks for having me. So you have been researching, writing, and teaching comics for a while now. And well, gosh, you're like one of our sort of pillars, right, for comic studies. But you also have published on people like David Cronenberg, on popular culture, Canadian sort of pop culture. So how does this all kind of fit into your journey, to your worldview, your, your life? Yeah, sure. When I started uh, my undergrad, I was actually a film studies major. Uh, and so I come to comic studies uh, from the study of film. And uh, when I wanted to do my graduate work in Canada, there were no, at the time, uh, graduate programs in film studies. So I ended up being sort of forced into communication studies, media studies um, generally, uh, where I continued to write on film and television, but slowly started to segue into doing some work on comics, almost sort of through the back door. And in one of my master's classes, I did um, an analysis of all the Superman covers from the 1950s. I was doing a course on popular culture of the 1950s. I thought, oh, well, this is good. And DC had released one of those kind of coffee table books to at all the covers. I thought, oh, this is, this is uh, a great topic. And my professor at the time was like, this is really interesting. No one writes about comics. You know, there's so little done. This would be mid nineties. Uh, and there was so little done in this area. And then, um, so I kind of kept at it for that course. And that's how I ended up writing about Frederick Wortham for the first time. I sort of talked about the comics code. Again, we're talking about the 1950s. And so started my explorations in that area. Um, and so I, I ended up writing my dissertation on Frederick Wortham that became the book Wortham and the critique of mass culture. But even then, I didn't really conceptualize myself as a comics scholar. And when I applied for the job here at the University of Calgary, I remember telling them, look, I've done this book about the 1950s anti-comics backlash. My next book will be about the 1960s anti-television. Uh, backlash. I just kind of figured I'd just keep rolling with that theme. It's like I'd get to the 1970s and I'd get to video games in the 1980s and heavy metal music. I could just, you know, because there's always a public concern uh, about new media, um, whether it's the internet now or uh, social media, screen time, all of these sorts of concerns just kind of uh, recur, uh, recur in uh, what Stanley Cohen has called um, uh, a folk scare. Or, uh, and so I just thought I would end up doing that. So I kind of kept my foot in film and television writing at the same time. I would go to film and television conferences like Society for Cinema and Media Studies. Uh, and that's how I ended up writing Canadian Television Today and my book on uh, David Cronenberg's History of Violence. But even then, you could see starting to move more and more towards comics kind of exclusively. It, you know, it still strikes me that the only book I've written about film is about a comic book adaptation, uh, the film version uh, of a graphic novel. And so uh, over time, I started to move more and more in the direction of comic studies. And I think that was really solidified in a lot of ways by my book on popular culture, where when I was a grad student, I had been writing for the comics journal for years. Uh, you know, they, they paid me to write about European comics uh, while I was living in Montreal. And as a grad student, I had no money. And so the little amount that the comics journal paid uh, was great. And I was happy to take uh, that funding. And so it left me in a situation where I thought I could write a book about this. I could take those columns and turn those into a book. And that became my first kind of post-dissertation 
project. So then when that book came out, all of a sudden I found myself, you know, now I have two books on comics. Well, maybe I should keep going uh, in this direction. And of course, comic studies has sort of grown up around and with my career. So in the mid nineties, when I was a graduate student, I could not have conceptualized that comic studies would be in the place that it is now. I remember I was just talking to Charles Hatfield uh, this morning, and he and I were graduate students at roughly the same time, and we communicate by email. And he was at Connecticut, and I was in Montreal. And you know, we just never, ever would have imagined that the programs and presses and journals and uh, associations uh, like exist at this time. And so, I've been fortunate that I've been able to kind of carve out a niche uh, and continue with the comic studies. And, and so, I ended up leaving film and television uh, behind in a lot of ways. It's interesting. Um, where were you? So before University of Calgary, where you are um, now, um, where were you teaching? Where, what was your first job out of the gate? And were they receptive to your interests? Did you have to sell yourself a different way to get that position? Yeah, so I did my MA and my PhD at McGill University in Montreal. Uh, and that's where they, you know, they were very receptive to the idea of me writing on Wortham and doing some other comic studies uh, work. But even at that time, it was sort of not comics. I mean, I could, I was working in comics, but no, I was like, well, I'm not really a comic scholar. I do the history of American mass culture and mass media and, and kind of social panics around that. And it's very much a kind of history of, of mass communication. And you could see how you could segue away from that. Uh, Calgary was my first academic job. I left uh, McGill and came sort of directly to the University of Calgary. I didn't uh, work as an adjunct um, anywhere. I didn't have the postdoc or the years on, on the market, uh, which was fortunate for me. Um, Calgary was not super excited about uh, me being a comic scholar. Um, very much not. They really hired me to teach the history of mass communication courses. They thought, okay, this guy's going to segue into television. That's great. He work in film. The communication and film studies program were in the same unit, so I could also teach the intro to film courses and I uh, taught co courses on the Coen brothers and other kind of uh, popular filmmakers and so on. And I thought, well, I'll continue to work in that direction. And it was after a couple of years I was here, that was sort of like, they would come back to me and they said, well, you've written this book on comics, you've written this other book on comics, it's time to get away from these things. I was like, you know what? I don't think so. I, I think this is, this is it for me. Um, and I think they were somewhat dismayed um, that this was going to be the direction that I was going to take. Um, there was a long time uh, where the communication program that I was teaching in wouldn't allow me to teach comics. So it took me eight years before they would let me teach a course on comics, which was a special topic. Uh, and of course the course did very well and then they were like, okay, maybe we should continue to do that. Uh, in 2010, I left my former unit and moved to the Department of English, um, which is a whole long bureaucratic story about the amalgamation of departments and faculties here. It's not particularly interesting. But in the English department, they were certainly more receptive, um, partly because the class uh, or the classes always draw um, particularly well. So they sort of allow me to do what I want. And at that point, I pretty much established my research profile at the uh, university as a, as a comics scholar. So. Um, they kind of uh, take what I'm, I'm willing and able to give them. But uh, I would say for a while, the university um, you know, was quite reluctant. I remember the first time I applied for internal funding was to do the research that ended up becoming unpopular culture. Uh, and I said, I need this you know, kind of startup money to do research on European comics in the 1990s. And they rejected my grant application and they said that I hadn't defined Europe. Uh, and I thought this is the most ridiculous 
uh, thing I, I've ever heard. I think Europe is, you know, there's some contention around, you know, are certain countries part of Europe or they're part of Asia? And so I feel like the idea is pretty straightforward. Uh, the university was really, really reluctant to give me initial startup funding because they felt that I would not be able to convert that funding into federal grant funding here. Uh, but when I applied for my first federal grant here through the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council, I, I received it. And so that just kind of ended the conversation. Um, once I'd been successful at the federal level, uh, there was no way they could come up with uh, plausible excuses to, to keep denying me uh, the resources I need to do my work. You seem incredibly successful in your application for fellowships, grants, yeah. including the big one that you've got, we'll talk about in just a minute. Um, so yeah, unpopular culture, you know, coming from the margins and sort of, you know, cultural phenomena that's pushed to the edges that does end up in fact transforming our social space. Can you talk a, just a little bit more about that and then we'll move like right into the comics itself. Yeah, I think um, one of the things that fascinates me about teaching the intro course over the last four or five years now is um, how out of touch I feel now with a lot of students. Um, and so when you say, you know, the image of growing up in the 1970s and 80s and liking comic books and reading comic books and how that marked you as kind of social outcast and um, they just don't get that anymore. If you're 20 years old now, it's not your experience. The Marvel movies have ruled for so long. There's not really that sense of, of comics being an outsider culture. And so I feel like I carry some of those those scars and wounds around with me and have tried to explain in a book like Unpopular Culture um, how the cultural position of comics has shifted over time, how we moved uh, from this uh, idea that comics were a disposable part of our culture, something that you wouldn't take seriously even in, uh, even in France where we long held that they, they held more respect um, and how they became art. And I was really, I've been really fascinated by that kind of, and this is my background in, in communication studies, I think, and the difference uh, from the training that some scholars have in literary studies is that I really do see as kind of social phenomenon. I'm interested in the sort of power relations that exist around, um, around these sorts of things. Uh, how comics become welcome into art galleries and museums and universities. And uh, so for instance, the, the Giller Prize, which is the, the most prestigious literary prize in Canada, just this year announced that for the first time they would welcome the submission of graphic novels for consideration. And I thought, you know, like you're 20 years behind the curve on this, but it leads me to want to write something about Canadian cultural prize giving and the place of comics within those um, sorts of institutions. I mean, because these biases against comics still do um, exist. We still see that certain works are accepted into universities in particular in certain ways. I mean, it strikes me that for many, many years, my English department that I work in had two courses named Shakespeare, uh, one at the junior and one at the senior level, and no courses on comics, no courses on film, no courses on television. It was just like, how is it that uh, our universities can't ignore uh, television for so long, have ignored uh, aspects of social media and so on uh, for so long and continue to, to teach, you know, this uh, canon of literary works is being handed down from, uh, from England over the years. We still teach our Chaucer courses in Dunn and so on. I'm, I'm not insulting my Chaucer and Dunn colleagues, but, you know, these biases, uh, I think certain scholars will say, well, no, postmodernism eliminated these biases. And I think, no, if you look at our university curricula, 
that's not the case. If you look at the way programs and departments are shaped and funded, no, that's not the case. There's still, uh, these legacies are, are very much there and I'm still very interested in interrogating uh, why, that, uh, why that is and how notions of uh, merit, for instance, um, conspire against comics or conspire against certain types of uh, comics entering into the classroom. Uh, comics versus art. This is a pretty seminal text in comic book studies. Can you um, tell us, like, in a nutshell, for folks who haven't read this, what it's what your findings were here, and have you changed any of your ideas? I, I feel like the idea. I haven't changed the ideas, although I think time is is overcoming this book a little bit um, for exactly some of the reasons that we just talked about. Well, I wrote, wrote Unpopular Culture, which is about avant-garde comics production in Europe in the 1990s. I got to the end of that book and I thought, you know, I talked about uh, the role of certain cartoonists and publishers and so on in helping to change our understanding of what comics were. but. One of the things that um, I realized I hadn't talked about was art schools and the way that uh, in Europe, art schools had begun teaching comics and that had created this kind of seedbed for experimentation uh, there. And then I thought I should write something on, uh, on comics art schools. And I thought, well, hold on, what are the other institutions of uh, the art world and how have they treated comics. And so you think of a figure like Roy Lichtenstein who famously appropriated comic book panels, a, a very controversial I think in, in the comics world, and that's how comics entered um, into the museum world. You don't see comics in art museums very often, but you will see a Roy Lichtenstein uh, painting. And I thought, well, that is such an interesting kind of thing to examine. And so I identified uh, certain of the of the institutions, I would say, of the art world, which are uh, art galleries, auction houses, museums, the art press, Art in America, uh, um, and so on, uh, other magazines like that, and wanted to talk about the way historically those had treated uh, comics. So, what were the earliest exhibitions of comics work in? Uh, museums going back to the 1960s and how they've been treated. And I looked at the figure of Robert Crumb, who's had about a dozen retrospectives of his work in museums all around the world and was able, lucky enough to be able to travel to those uh, and talk to uh, the curators and so on and talk about the strategies that they use to incorporate his work uh, into the museums. I went to Sotheby's and Christie's and talked to their auctioneers and talked about the phenomenon in the 1990s of them auctioning off comic book and original com old comic books and original comics art and the way that they conceptualize that very differently than the way they conceptualize selling uh, contemporary painting, for example. They sell a Basquiat very differently than they would sell a Robert Crumb or a Todd McFarlane uh, original uh, page. And so um, it was just a matter of thinking, okay, comics probably, I mean, one of the weird things about comics in the academy is you would think, I think if an alien came down and they said, well, where do you study comics in your universities? They would say, oh, in your art history departments, right? There's a predominantly visual medium and uh, it's obvious that that would be the first place that would take it up. And that hasn't been the case as our, our friends and colleagues who are themselves art historians, you know, note Andre Molotou and others, note the difficulty at, there's been in getting comics uh, instantiated into art departments. They have been taken up in literature departments. So we tend to talk about graphic novels and important graphic novels from Mouse to Persepolis to Fun Home and, and so on uh, in kind of literary terms. And I was much more interested in saying, okay, well, hold on. What are the forces that kept them out of the art world? Uh, how is the art world sort of 
trepidatiously, very tentatively in a lot of cases, um, reached out to comics um, and said, well, fine, we don't want comics in our art museums, but Spielman's okay and Crumb's okay and Gary Panter, who did the cover here, is okay and so on. And then also how did comics respond to those opportunities? Uh, sometimes with resentment, sometimes uh, with, um, you know, also I think the kind of wariness. I think the wariness runs both ways um, in uh, in this case. I think that I love this Gary Panter cover because, um, you know, that sense of he's Bizarro Picasso here and he's not art, that what he does is is not art. Uh, and, uh, uh, but it could be and it, it could have been. So I said, I think it's been taken, overtaken a little bit. I think every day now we see the cracks in the art world opening up a little bit more, a little bit more, um, and um, and you know, artists like Chris Ware or Alison Bechtel or Linda Barry um, are are pushing these these doors open. Uh, just a, I think to a point where it looks bizarre. As I said to my my younger students, don't kind of get it. They're like, what do you mean these things weren't considered art? We're just considered disposable trash in the 19th bit. And you have to kind of go back and show them the documentary footage of them burning comic books and so on for them to really get the idea that no, I mean, comics had to fight a battle to get to where they are. So that's what that book is about. It's really about the battle, the, the reputational battle that comics fought um, and in some ways continue to fight uh, in the art world. It's interesting that you focus on institutional spaces, which is so like uh, important. Um, but it's also, of course, really kind of amazing the work that you've been doing to kind of push people to see the significance of the kind of visual itself as a space for storytelling, right? Um, you know, right. Bechtel, I see Bechtel a lot on syllabi in English departments, but then I listen in to how it, she's being taught. And so um, often it it's sort of like, they almost forget that the visuals are the kind of primary sort of propeller, right, engine behind the, the energy of the narrative. Right. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, when I teach Fun Home, and I've had a great success teaching Fun Home, it's a very, very teachable book. Um, when I teach my intro class, which is an English department uh, class, I'd say about a third of the students tend to be English majors, and they they feast on that book. I mean, they get all the Joyce references, they get all the Wolf references. They're like, oh, finally their hands are straight up in the air because they're like, oh, I get this, I get this, I get this. Let me explain this to the engineers and geologists that are in uh, the class and so on. But one of the things that class always ends up focusing on because all the students pick it up is the scene where she's in the car with her father at the end and it switches from uh, three tiered pages, which you've had 200 three tiered pages in a row to a four tiered page. And everybody's like, whoa, what? You know, it's like it, like uh, black and white movies switch to color. Like all of a sudden, everybody goes, "Oh yeah, that's incredibly significant use of page design uh, here, and the smaller panels and the repetition and and so on." It's like this is the most important scene in the entire book, and she marks it that way so clearly. Um, and yeah, I think that if you you know, for some of our colleagues who just focus on the text or the themes of the text, uh, yeah, they can miss those kind of formal. Uh, elements and so in the intro course in particular we really try and drive those you know those points home about how comics uh, communicates meaning through its formal strategies and so uh, when you teach it at the end of the term the students really they leap on that they, they see it right away uh, what kind of strategies that she's using there. So what you know you have you co-authored this with 
uh, Ben. And so what is the greatest comic book of all time? Yeah, we, uh, um, this, this was a, a provocative book when Ben, uh, Ben was working with me at Calgary as a, as a shirk funded postdoctoral uh, fellow. And we were talking about this a lot. We were talking about what were comics, the project that we're doing now. Um, and we decided to basically do the theoretical piece um, of uh, that project first. Um, and so we were very, very interested, both Ben and I are uh, very interested in the sociology of Pierre Bourdieu, the kind of cultural sociology that he's done. When, when Ben left Calgary for his tenure track job in, in Ottawa, he gave me a Pierre Bourdieu t-shirt. So I'm very happy to wear my, my Bourdieu t-shirt. Um, we were, that's where the notion of symbolic capital comes here. We're, this book is sort of a refinement on a lot of what I argued in comics versus art, and then also a preview of the argument of, uh, of, that we'll produce in what were comics. And we wanted to say, look, the greatest comic book of all time is Mouse. It's just a fact. That is the book that has been written on the most by scholars. It is the most taught. If you look at the Open Syllabus Project, it's the comic that's right up at the top. Art Spiegelman is our Shakespeare. Uh, he is undeniably, indisputably the most important figure in the world of comics. Great. Why is that? Well, it's because the humanities, the academic humanities operates in certain ways. And one of those ways is the recognition of individual genius. And so we have Shakespeare, who is Shakespeare? And we have Chaucer, who is Chaucer? And uh, you pick out, and you have Toni Morrison, who's Toni Morrison. And you pick out individual works and you say, these are the great works. These are the great artists. Often, uh, uh, these are how they go hand in hand. And we will teach you those things in our intro to English classes and our French classes, and our Spanish classes and so on. And Spiegelman is the first cartoonist who really crossed over that threshold, even beginning in, in the 1990s. I remember being an undergrad in the 1980s and seeing Mouse in the university bookstore and someone was teaching it in a history class. And I thought, oh my God, like this is really, wow, I've got to take that history class really uh, edgy at that time. So we said, well, in the world we live in, Spiegelman's the most important because the social relations that we work in privilege individual genius and works that can be held up as as great but what if we lived in you know we come from a comic book background so we live in the multiverse and the alternate realities and we said well what if the world were structured slightly different so what if for example um comics hadn't been taken up predominantly in english departments what if they had been taken up in our art history departments what if art history had leapt on them in the 1990s. Well, Spiegelman is an interesting visual stylist, but I don't think he's considered a premier visual stylist. So some, a figure like Crumb might be more important, uh, who's been taken up by a lot by museums. Crumb, I think, doesn't get taught a lot in American universities, uh, partly because he lacks that great graphic novel. He's done a lot of short stories that are influential, but we don't tend to teach short stories in the same way that we teach. Uh, the graphic novel. Crumb is also not taken up because his work now is seen as politically very retrograde and problematic. There's a lot of racism in his work, a lot of sexism and misogyny in his work. So he's a problematic figure, but you could imagine a world where he would have been more important. That's kind of Earth too. And then we thought, well, what if the world was spun another 90 degrees on its axis? And we, we didn't talk about the kind of culturally sanctified work? What if it was the most popular work? What if an artist like Rob Liefeld was the most important? Or what if uh, foreign language artists were the most important? Or what if, and so this, the book is a series of, of what if situations. What would have to have changed in our world 
for Rob Liefeld to have produced the greatest comic book of all time, or for Martin Von James, a, a, an artist who's very little studied in the Anglo world, who comes out of a poetry background and published comics with the poetry press out of Toronto in the 1970s. What if the most obscure cartoonist was the most important? So what are all of these different scenarios? What would the world look like that could have produced these different um, logics? And it's a way then of interrogating the logic that has created Spiegelman uh, as the most important. And I think Bechtel is the second most, and Marjan Satrapi is kind of, you know, there's a kind of hierarchy of artists that we can work our way down that uh, I think most people in comic studies would, would recognize that Spiegelman's at the top and then Strappy and Bechtel and then Ware and Sacco and others. I mean, Linda Berry is, is surging and so on. And so we wanted to talk about social relations that have, uh, have enabled that um, and that have mar worked to marginalize Raina uh, Telgemeier, for instance, or Jean Yang, uh, and people that do young adult comics, uh, for instance, because, you know, in the world that we live in, Raina Telgemeier and Dave Pilkey are the top-selling cartoonists on the planet, but they're very little studied. I mean, you know, there's a lot of appreciation, I think, for her smile and drama and so on, but people aren't writing scholarly work uh, on her work. Well, why is that? Well, there's biases against children's lives, biases against young adults, um, and so on. And so it's all, that, again, is all sort of part of the struggle of what works were deemed plausible, to borrow a term from David Bordwell. Certain works that it's, academia thinks are self-evidently worthy of study. You would never, ever, ever have to write in your preface to a dissertation on Hamlet, an uh, explication of why you're choosing to write on Shakespeare. It's self-evident that you if you have something new to say about Hamlet, you can say it. But if you want to write about Reina, yeah, I think you'd have to say, well, this is why Reina is important and worthy of study uh, and kind of make that case. And that's the sort of uh, ideology um, that, uh, that we're interested in, uh, in addressing. Um, one of the ideological blind spots, we think, of uh, literary studies of, of comics is the fact that people don't recognize concepts of quality um, as um, ideologically produced. And so we're trying to point out certain ways that they have been ideologically produced so that we can move on from them, hopefully, with our current project. Certain irony, of course, right? Because uh, we've created a kind of hierarchy and a canon in a space that has sort of defied or pushed against that, right? Um, yeah, we, we've replicated in miniature all of the biases of of literary studies where you say, okay, well, we organized literary studies in certain ways with British literature here and American lit there and Canadian lit down lower than both of those. Uh, and then we've done the same within comics where we have the, you know, autobiographical graphic novel and this kind of privileged space and, uh, you know, superheroes somewhere below that and, uh, you know, funny animal comics from the 1940s well below that. So um, getting to our sort of next, and we've been kind of talking about this all along, but studying and teaching, especially teaching, um, your classes enroll like gazillions of kids. Um, I'm, you know, and you're doing all these incredible things with them. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, it's, it's funny. When I moved to English in 2010, I, they said, well, would you teach this intro to uh, comics class? And I said, yeah, sure, no problem. Of course, it's, it's my dream. And they said, oh, well, we're going to set the cap at 40 students. And I said, oh, okay, fine. That's fine. And so they came to me a couple of weeks later, and they said, uh, your class is full. Can we, uh, we think there's some more demand. Can we raise that up to 75? I said, yeah, sure, no problem. Let's raise it to 75. And then they came back to me, and they said, yeah, your class is full at 75. Can we go to 100? 
Can we go to 150? Can we go? Um, so the class is always now full. It's become a kind of uh, cult class. And so just last week or two weeks ago, I guess we had the uh, first day of uh, class enrollment and the intro class filled in minutes. Um, and I start getting emails from people who are on the waiting list and hoping they will get in. Uh, there is a tremendous untapped demand. We cannot meet the demand uh, the university for these classes and all of my classes. I'm fortunate that almost everything I teach now is is comics. I teach an intro uh, class regularly. I teach an advanced comics class regularly. Uh, and now I'm teaching kind of a senior level special topics course um, as well. And those are all all full. I try to do um, sort of non-literary things. I don't I, I don't like the midterm final essay kind of a few short things. So um more recently i think last year i taught the class students had 57 assignments um we had 25 class sessions they had to do writing in advance of every class which is graded on a pass fail credit fail um basis uh, which keeps them reading the material uh sometimes that's writing sometimes it's not so i was teaching uh jaime hernandez's work from love and rockets and um, we did a number of projects there where uh, I gave them a page of Love and Rockets with the words whited out and they had to write new dialogue uh, for the piece. Um, and many of them were quite hilarious, actually, because it did sort of meta reflections on the course as a whole uh, through the voices of Maggie and Hopia. Um, I have uh, assignments where we're reading Adrian Tomina and they have to tell me which is the most important panel in the entire piece and redraw it and explain why this is uh, the one, which leads to an incredible class actually, where students are sort of debating, we usually get like 20 or 30 different panels that students have picked as, no, this is the key moment, this is the key moment, um, which is really fascinating because it depends on who they think is the key character, or what they think is the key emo emotion and which revelation is, is most central. Um, so yeah, I tend to work with them on that where I have them draw. Nick Susanis was here for two years working with me. Uh, and a lot of what I learned that way, I learned from Nick. I mean, Nick's classroom is very filled with, with students who are drawing their daily lives, breaking things into panels, thinking through visual strategies. And uh, I learned a lot from observing his classroom and uh, have incorporated a lot from that. But I've also incorporated a lot of low stakes writing um, because we have a lot of non-English students in the class, a lot of engineers who are taking their one humanity required humanities course and they're like, oh, I'm gonna do it on. On, um, on this comics thing. Um, and I just try and get them to write with very, very, very low stakes. And so, um, or even move away from writing altogether. So one of the projects I like, and I'll go back to again this year, uh, is having students trace a, a single page from a comic. Um, so they just tell me what you think is the most important page here, reproduce it in a very, you know, kind of sloppy way, no, no grades for, for drawing it uh, in a pretty way, and then annotate it. Uh, fill in the word balloons, tell me why the six panels here or the nine panel grid or whatever it is that they've chosen, you know, how the panels function here, how the position of characters contributes to, uh, to meaning and, and so on. I usually get them to do that twice and then have a final project where they compare and contrast and say, well, I took this Jaime Hernandez page and I took this Adrian Tomina page and they seem very, very different because they're very different artists and this is why I think the the Jaime page is, is more interesting to me, or why I think Adrian's page is, is more interesting, but really kind of thinking through the visual stylistics 
um, right at the level of, of having them sort of draw it. Um, I always get students that want to, they're like, well, I don't want to do a six page final project. Can I do a six page comic? And I'm like, oh, absolutely. Let's, let's do a comic. And they freak out. They're always there in the final week. And they're like, this is so hard. Like, I, I thought, you know, you just do a comic. Page. And I'm like, no, Chris Ware spends 40 hours constructing each one of his pages. What made you think that you were going to be able to do this faster than he was? He's been working at it for 20 years. Like, oh my God. And so they always hand in these comics that are this beautiful first page and it just gets worse and worse and worse as it goes along because they haven't budgeted the appropriate amount of time. But I think it's important to get them working at that level, to get them drawing, uh, drawing. I give them even to draw portraits of people who have been important to them, portraits of uh, fictional characters that have been important to them and, and so on and just reflect on what is it um, that goes into creating uh, comics in this way. How do we know, for instance, uh, this is a, one of my favorite lectures to do, but how do we know when a drawing is finished? Um, when do, you know, when does it look done to you? When, when is it got the final amount of information? I always show a Jim Woodring video of him drawing a, a, a panel from uh, a Frank comic and he just keeps, you know, it's this long kind of thing and students are like, I think he's done. It's like, no, he's, it just keeps adding more and more lines and more and more lines. And they say, you know, and students are always like, there's 10 times when I would have stopped. And they're like, yeah, but he didn't. He just, he kept going, partly because, you know, he's got this crazy aesthetic. Um, but uh, that question of, of what constitutes finished work, what constitutes a complete drawing, um, is one that I don't think a lot of our students have have contemplated. So you've come out with this book uh, with Charles and it's Comic Studies, a guidebook. And I will confess that it's like, I have been dreaming for this kind of a book in my intro to comic studies courses. So I'm so glad that it's here. Um, but yeah, tell, tell me, um, you just shared some methods, um, some practices, really, really great practices that you have in your classroom space. What kind of drew you and Charles to put this thing together? And what might one expect from sort of adopting it? Yeah. Yeah, I think both Charles and I had the conversation where we were exactly like you. We're like, why does this book not exist? Um, why is it that all, each of us that's teaching an intro class is hobbling together a series of, of readings from, you know, we have great book chapters and journal articles. You can assemble a reader and have your university bookstore compile it for you um, every year, but there was never one single volume where I was like, okay, fine, I will, I will assign this. So you kind of, oh, you can use Understanding Comics and cover a lot of this material. And for history, you can use Jean-Paul Gabbier's book. And there, there's lots of different options, but not one entirely where you would say, a student will come and say, I don't understand how manga fits into this because I don't touch on manga that much in my intro class. We actually have a, a manga specialist who teaches an intro to manga class. So I don't want to try down his toes over in the Japanese department. But my students ask me, like, and so I'm like, well, I have a book here and it would give you an overview of manga as well as the comic strip, as well as the comic book, as well as. So this book is organized as a series of histories. So Ian Gordon on the history of the American comic strip, Charles himself on the comic book, me on European comics, Frenchie London on manga, uh, and so on. 
uh, as well as a, a series of formal investigations, um, how drawing works in comics, how page design works, um, and then larger kind of sociological functions around digital comics, Ben Wu on comics fans and readers and audiences, um, and so on. And it's really, there's 17 chapters. Uh, and so I feel like people that are teaching in Canada, we tend to have 13 week terms and a lot of American schools, 15, 16 week terms, uh, try to cover, uh, imagine that a class could use this either as the main reading or supplemental reading for every week in, in a comic book class and go through uh, most of the formal elements that you would want to go through and most of the kind of historical moments because it's difficult, it's almost impossible. I, I find teaching intro comics can just be a killer. When I used, I used to teach intro to film, when I would teach intro to film, I would think there's certain things that students need to learn. They need to know what the difference, what a cut is, what a shot is, what a scene is, all of these kind of formal terms, a dolly, a zoom, a fade, all of that kind of formal stuff. And then a little bit about theories of auteurism, theories of genre, and so on. But you could teach that in the context of there's a film studies program here. They're going to go off and take a course on Hitchcock or the Coen brothers or the Western or the horror film and so on. One, and their theory of genre will be developed more at the senior level. That's not the case with a lot of comic studies classes. That's it, it's intro to comic studies, that's the one class. And so you have to teach all the formal stuff, page design, drawing, ink, what's the difference between a, a penciler and an inker? How do these relationships work? What is the industrial relationship? Where did Marvel and DC come from? Why are comics come out on Wednesdays? What, how does the direct market work? How has that contributed to the rise of Fantagraphics and drawing quarterly. How do comic strips fit into this? How do cave paintings fit into this? Then you've got the international uh, thing. Then you've got superheroes and about and the undergrounds and 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 you start putting together all these ands. I think anybody that's designed a, an intro course has found themselves looking at a list of 120 lectures that they want to give in a 15-week class, and it's not possible. And so uh, we really thought, okay, fine. What if you didn't have to spend uh, you know, three classes going through the history of comic strips. What if Ian Gordon could just, you know, you could just do one lecture on that and uh, Ian Gordon can fill in the details. What if you don't have to do the whole history of the direct market? Charles can tell the students that and then you can move on to teaching about love and rockets or uh, whatever it is that uh, you want to focus on. And so it really is, I think, um, a book that we think is this kind of supplement to uh, what people are going to be doing in the classroom. So. Hopefully it gets a uh, fairly wide uh, take up. It's been a, this book has been a long, long, long process um, in putting it together. It's, uh, we've changed publishers, we've changed authors, we've had people drop in and out. Uh, it's just been a very lengthy process. So I will be very happy to have it in my hands uh, later on this summer. So uh, yeah, it's coming, like still, still dealing with emails about it today, so. Well, I've already got it assigned. It's already being ordered at the bookstore. So thank you to you and Charles for put, you know hanging in there for us. Um, so, oh my goodness, Bart, you and uh, Ben and Nick, you're doing this big data comics project. Insane. So for folks who don't know what you're doing, can you give us a nutshell in this kind of tell us Maybe um, maybe some of the hypotheses, um, and yeah, tell us all about it. Yeah, so the project is called What Were Comics, um, and you can check out our blog and our, our, our project website at whatwerecomics.com, but um, it really comes out of uh, the conversations that Ben and I were having about notions of greatness, and I think 
uh, one of my um, uh, issues with comic scholarship has always been um, this notion that we uh, focus exclusively on on the mouses of the world, on the fun homes of the world. And those are meritorious books. I teach them. I've written about these books. Uh, I have nothing against these books. But we have this kind of very limited scope of what's considered acceptable work. And this was really driven home to me when I did the Archie book, 12 Cent uh, Archie, which you see me posing here with all my, my Archie stuff when I was writing that. Um, and that came out of, so that book came out of a conversation with Corey Kriegmer, the series editor uh, at Rutgers University Press. And we were in uh, Iowa for a conference that Corey put together. And he said, I'm putting together this series. I'd like you to write one of the first books. And it's about great comic books. And I said, no, I don't want to do that. Thanks for inviting me to your conference, Corey. Don't want to insult you to your face, but uh, no, I'm not interested in writing about great comics. All of my work is opposed to the notion of, of greatness. And I said, you would never have a book in that series on Archie comics, for instance, because there are no great Archie comics. And he said, oh, of course, we, we'd take a book on Archie comics. You're so wrong. I, uh, so we'll do this. And we were drinking and we're drinking and we're talking about this book. And the next day he's driving me to the airport. And he says, so send me a proposal for this Archie book. And I said, what Archie book? And he said, oh, you were talking about a lot. I said, oh, no, you know, I have too many beers. There's no, I'm not writing an Archie book. And a couple of weeks later, I got back to Calgary and he sent me an email. I said, where's the proposal for this Archie book? And I thought, this guy's crazy. Like, who can write a book about Archie? There's, there's no way to do it. And so I was sitting again in a bar. All my stories are in bars. I think there's a problem here. Uh, with one of my colleagues who's a poet. And he said, you can't write an academic book on Archie. It's not possible. You can't write the typical five chapter, like 40 page chapter about, you know, heteronormativity and nostalgia in Riverdale. I'm like, I'm already asleep. Like I already know what you would say. And it's kind of boring to spell out these sorts of things. And I was like, yeah, you can't do it. And he said, you should write it like a book of poems. Um, they can be short. You could write a hundred short chapters instead of five long chapters. Mm -hmm. I said, oh, that's very good because all the Archie stories are short. A very long Archie story is six pages. He said, yeah, you should write all these short chapters. And they said, the, the other thing that we thought was interesting about Archie is that all the chapters are set in the present. None of them build on other stories. So Betty can be a, a good bowler in one story and a bad bowler in another story. And they don't contradict each other uh, because they don't exist in the same relation. And he said, you should just write them the chapters in a random order. And so I read all of the Archie comics from the 1960s and ended up writing a hundred chapter book about Archie comics. And I thought this is this weird little project that I've done that nobody will care about. And for a few years there, I was like the Archie guy. People were like obsessed with this book. They were like, everybody wants, like, I love that it's all these short chapters. There's a chapter in the book that's only one sentence long. Um, and so people were like, oh, this is crazy. And people were very interested in the way that I paid close attention to things that had not previously merited attention. And that really got Ben and I thinking about, well, what else um, is out there? Like, how is it that the entire history of the American comic book is written as if comics start around 1986? That um, in 1986, Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons publish Watchmen, Frank Miller does Dark Knight Returns, Love and Rockets is going strong, Chaikin's doing American Flag, and Mouse comes out. And all of a sudden, you know, Rolling Stone and Spin Magazines are doing Biff Van Pow, comics aren't just for kids' stories anymore, and a whole generation of comic scholars are become fascinated by these graphic novels that come out of this. But they don't write about 1970s black and white horror comics, 1960s DC romance comics, 1950s Dell comics. I mean, if you search for the word Dell in the 
thousands of books that have come out about comics. I mean, it almost doesn't occur. And they were the market leader for 25 years. I mean, for 25 years, they were the dominant uh, force in the American comic book industry. And other than Karl Barks, nobody pays any attention to them. I guess John Stanley's little Lulu as well. And nobody pays any attention to Dell. And I thought, how is this possible? And then in a conversation with Martin Barker, the great British uh, comic scholar, he noted that um, everyone in comic studies writes often great analyses of individual comics, that you can find incredible writing on one specific thing, and people do this one focused thing. And that's great, there's nothing wrong with it. Nobody wants to try and talk about the field as a whole uh, and what that might look like. And that's when we said, okay, you know what? Well, why don't we try to write about all of comic books, like the entirety uh, of what has been published? Uh, how would you go about doing that? And the model that we adopted is uh, from the film scholarship, actually, is David Boardwell, Kristen Thompson, and Janet Steiger's book, The Classical Hollywood Cinema, where they tried to survey everything that had been done in Hollywood from a technological standpoint to the organization of studios to the types of narratives that were created in this kind of 25-year period that we call the golden age of the, of the Hollywood studios. And the key to what they did was they randomly sampled their films. They didn't say, oh, okay, we're going to look at Casablanca and Grand Hotel and, uh, you know, Gone with the Wind and all these great studio films. They said, well, we'll just take a list of all the films that have been released in our time period and we'll randomly select I think they randomly selected a couple of hundred of them, and we will watch those. And we thought, okay, we are going to make a list of every comic book that has been published in the United States from 1934 to 2014, which is when we started this. It's six years ago we started now. And that actually took us two years to compile that list into an Excel spreadsheet. And then we ran it through a random number generator, and we asked it to create 2%, to pick 2% of every book that had been published every year. So 2% from 1934, 2% from 1935. We ended up with 3,563, number that's drilled into my head, it's my bike chain lock, 3,563 comics. And then we spent a year buying those comic books. Um, and so we have, um, they're all behind me actually on the, on the shelves there. Uh, we have issues of Superman from 1937 that cost us hundreds and hundreds of dollars. We have issues of uh, goofy comics from the 1970s and Mickey Mouse and Adventure Time and Romance and Western and War and uh, so many richy riches uh, in the 1970s. And so we just compiled this corpus of not important comic books. They're literally random. Um, and so we're trying to study the typical comic book, see what, not what the exceptional comics are, uh, but what the typical comics are, because we are quite convinced that there are things that are atypical. Uh, you know, one of the reasons that Shakespeare is important is that Shakespeare is very different from all his contemporaries. I mean, you can read other Elizabethan plays and go, oh, Shakespeare is different in his use of language and his structures and so on. You can read a Jack Kirby comic and go, this doesn't really look like what everybody else was doing at that time, or Will Eisner, or Steranko, or Bechtel, uh, or Linda Berry. These all look different. Well, how different? And that's the question. How can you have a notion of exceptionalism if you don't have a notion of what is typical, what is standard. What did a standard comic book look like in 1955? And how is it different from 1975? One of the things that really inspired the project was 
I was teaching my intro class and we did Watchmen. We talked about Watchmen for a couple of weeks. And then we went to SAGA and um, students really liked Watchmen and they really liked SAGA. But one of the first comments, I'm sort of like the first day we were talking about SAGA and I just asked, oh, anybody have anything to say about SAGA? And one of the students said, I can read nine issues of SAGA in the same time it takes to read one issue of Watchmen. I was kind of taken aback by that, but I was like, yeah, that seems right. That's, um, Alan Moore is a very wordy writer. There's a lot of information in Watchmen. It's very compact. And SAGA has these big splash pages that have very little, uh, you know, five or six splash pages an issue that has very little text and so on. And the student said, is that the function of the difference between Alan Moore as a writer and Brian Vaughn as a writer, or is it a function of the 1980s versus the 2010s? And I thought about it for a second and I said, well, it's both. I think, yes, you could, you could write an analysis comparing these comics and attribute it to those individual writers. But I think you'd also want to say that comics in the 2010s tend to have much less writing than they did in the 1980s. I think for people that have read a lot of comics from those eras, you would think that's a commonsensical, yeah, yeah, I think everybody nods when I say, oh yeah, it makes sense to me. But then when I ask the question, how much less I mean, how much less writing is there now? Could we quantify that? Well, no, we can't quantify it. And how much less writing is there in the 80s than in the 50s? And further, was there an inflection point when all of this changed? So I talked about earlier in 1986 is this moment the comic scholars look to and say, well, there's a big change here. Well, is there? Are comics in 1986 that much different than comics in 1980? That much different from comics in 1992? I don't know. I really, really don't know. And I think this is the, what's most exciting for us about this project, is I think when you write things in the humanities, we tend to have a sense of what we're going to find. You know, like I'm going to write about Watchmen, and I'm going to do it from a Lacanian uh, perspective, and guess what I found lack. Right, you're going to find these themes because you've read the work and you go, ah, these themes seem to exist there, and you know what you're going to get. We are doing this almost like a science project. I don't know. Like, if, if you try to treat this virus with this drug, what will happen? We don't know. That's why we're doing the experiment. And sometimes you'll find nothing. Uh, and then you just publish that and you say, there was nothing. That did nothing. Don't do that again. That was a waste of time. And sometimes you find something and then you pursue that. And what we're finding now as we move through this is that. We have these 3,563 comics and we're just doing data analysis on all of them. So we've coded them all at the story level. So we've made notes about every single story. How long is the story? Uh, how many stories are there in the 1950s and 60s? It was typical to have four or five stories in an issue. Today, it's very, very rare. I mean, you can count on one hand the number of comic books on the stands right now that have more than one story in them. Jimmy Olsen is kind of notable right now for having multiple stories uh, and for telling its uh, story in that way. We tend to have these ongoing stories. Well, when did that happen? When did we move to one story per issue? Well, we've coded that. We can, we can tell you. When did uh, we start moving away from a nine-panel grid? When did we start moving away from three tiers? When did the number of words change? And so what we found is that the way that we tend to historicize comics in comic studies don't work. So for instance, people will talk in comic studies and in fandom about the golden age and the silver age. And there's always sort of this vague notion of when does the silver age start? Is it with showcase? And, 1954 is 1955 is 1956 is when fantastic four number one and so on like what exactly is that 
cutting point. But what's clear to people is that 1950 was the golden age and 1960 is the silver age and there's a difference. But when we look at comic books from, the 1950, from 1950 and from 1960, we start to look and go, these look the same to me. Uh, these comics all have four stories in them. They tend to have an average of eight panels. Uh, there's no big change. And so how can we say there's been a, we're in a different historical moment when if you look at it from the outside, there's nothing has changed um, in the format. The DC Superman comic from 1960 and from 1950 look very, very similar. So when is it that they change? Well, 1966 seems like a, a inflection point for us. 1976 seems like another one to us. And 1986 also seems like one. It's funny, we've, we started this project kind of to prove that 1986 didn't uh, manifest a big change and now all our data seeming to suggest that in fact it did uh, which is really driving us up the wall a little <laughs> bit but sort of we were like everybody was uh, was right but they were accidentally right but uh, we're trying to pull all this together and so uh, right now I have three dozen students that are counting panels in, in comics because we have electronic versions now we've scanned all of our comics we have pdfs of them all and they're all over the world and they're counting our panels and they're counting the text so we can then probably sometime in late summer run it all through our, our data set and spit out uh, pages and say oh look here's a chart of the number of the average number of words per page in comic books by year and hopefully we'll see some patterns. If we don't, then we'll have wasted a lot of time and money. But uh, I do think we are gonna see um, new ways of, of thinking through uh, some of these differences. We did a paper last year where we didn't look at the comics themselves, we only looked at the ads um, and we were able to see huge, huge changes in comic book publishing in the late 1970s and through the mid 80s, just in the arrangement of ads um, and the disappearance of the rise and fall of small ads that used to populate Marvel and DC comics, the rise and fall of in-house ads, so Marvel's comics not having ads for chocolate bars anymore, only having ads for other Marvel products and so on because they can't sell the ads. Um, and all of that suggests to me that we are going to be able to write a very different history of the American comic book. But we're still, we're six years into this project and I still feel we're only about halfway because we need to move on to bigger questions like, um, coding the number of characters that appear in each panel are they male or female what is the racial breakdown of these characters can we even do that does it you know can you code for race in a funny animal comic uh for example um which raises some interesting questions if your character is a talking toaster uh how do you gender that uh, those types of things so uh coding for genre coding for uh, representation all of those is sort of the next step of this and so uh, we still see a lot a lot of work ahead of us before uh, we're able to to finalize our conclusions on this project yeah i'm really excited i'm excited that we <clears throat> potentially have a basis for kind of really a kind of empirical basis for kind of finally pushing aside uh, kind of fuzzy logics and speculative kind of genius myth based right uh, periodizations and histories. It also reminds me a little bit about of uh, Franco Moretti's project with literature, right? Um, yeah, sure. Stanford, right. Um, kind of really trying to 
you know, having this huge sort of data that then you can kind of mine once again with different questions to, to finesse and also to answer more. Um, so yeah, um, I mean, maybe this is obvious given, given your big data comics project, but where is the vitality in comic studies? Um, and what comics are you really jazzed about right now? Well, I just, uh, it's funny, I just bought a complete Karl Barks set. So that's uh, uh, okay. from a store that's trying to help them out as they're gone to the mail order only in, in the present time. So now I'm just obsessed with uh, uh, with uh, Karl Barks. In some ways, in terms of comics, I'm at the same place that I was even in the 1990s. If you read my book on popular culture, I still uh, am obsessed with sort of the kind of avant-garde um, French language, uh, European language stuff I just got in the mail mm. on Friday. I just got, I don't know if I'm something. Uh, the new Dominique Goblet book. Oh, yeah. uh, I'm, uh, I'm totally obsessed with, with, her, kind of, um, with her kind of work. Uh, I'm still reading a lot of that material. It's funny, I find now, um, I'm, I've gotten to the point in my life where I start to look at all the paper in my house and wonder, will I ever reread this um and a couple of years ago i gave away all of my american sized comic books i donated them to the university library and they created the bart Beatty collection uh which is not yet open to the public they're still uh cataloging that but i was like i rather have the space in my house back than have these comics and i'm starting to think what am i going to give away next and i have literally up here in my office thousands of comics on the shelves that are right behind this computer and i think well time for many of these to go. And I'm, so the question of what stands to the test of time for me and what I'd be interested in rereading uh, is becoming kind of more and more pressing and kind of more interesting as, um, um, as I get older. My son is very interested in manga. Um, he has almost no interest in North American comics, but is really kind of directing me more and more uh, to uh, to manga, and so that's where a lot of my reading is now. Is trying to catch up and realizing that for decades I've been behind the curve on that, uh, behind where my students are on that, and I need to uh, kind of figure that out. It's also a lot of the comic study stuff that I'm interested in now. It's being exposed by my colleague in the Japanese department, Ben Wally, to uh, to some of this material. Uh, I feel like that's the biggest gap right now that we have in comic studies. Um, I translated with Ann Miller a few years ago, the French comics theory reader, and mm -hmm. I would pay somebody serious amount of money if they would just please go out and do the Japanese comics theory reader because I'm so very cognizant of what we don't know, um, mm -hmm. of how many scholars are doing work there. And when I'm told about it, I'm like, that sounds fascinating. I can't read it. I'll never get the linguistic skill to do it. Can somebody please? bring that out for us um, over here. So that's an area that I would like to see more and more um, in, in comic studies. Um, comic studies, it's funny, I feel like in some ways I'm fighting a, a rear guard um, campaign now. I mean, what were comics? It's like, it's the kind of purely, in some ways, a purely formal, like, you're counting words and panels, how retrograde. It seems like such a 1970s, 80s kind of step. Um, and I think that's true um, in some ways. I also feel like comic studies skipped that step. We come along um, at a point in the history of the academy where we've moved off of some of these questions into newer questions around feminism and trauma and post-coloniality and 
uh, and so on. I think you know that's where obviously I'm seeing tons and tons of great work being done by graduate students at conferences is all around uh, uh, that kind of work. And we've moved away from the kind of strict formal stuff. And I feel like I'm the, you know, I'm now the old guy at, of comic studies. I've got the old man beard now. And I just sit in the back and I'm like, I'm gonna, you know, keep plugging away and kind of fill in some of these holes um, in the, uh, that other people don't want to take on because they're, they're more equipped and more interested to take on, uh, you know, I think some of, uh, uh, these other questions that uh, that are coming up. I think, you know, comic studies is not trailing anymore. I think for a long time we were like, oh, we've just got to mm -hmm. go back. And um, there was a sense in the 90s and the 2000s, and it's still sort of there today, that it's like comic studies is really an area where you can do anything. I mean, you're literally, you know, I live in the mountains, and it's like you stand in the mountain, it's all untracked powder. You just go, you know, what's the route down here? Um, for a long time, you could, I felt like, well, you can do anything. We have no monograph on Spiegelman. We have no monograph on Crumb. We have no, like, you tell colleagues that in, in literature, my colleagues, Ben Saunders at Oregon, I remember talking to him once about a paper that he'd written on Othello. And I thought, how do you find something new to say about Othello? There's 5,000 academic articles on Othello. And he's like, oh, yeah, well, I wrote this thing in. He's explaining it to me. I'm like, you know, you could just write something on, you know, in his case, religion and superheroes. And it's like, nobody else has done it, right? He's just the first guy down that mountain. And the Othello tracks are all over there. And people are picking up the stones and trying to turn over and see what they can still find. Comic studies is like exhilarating because anything you wanted to write about, no one else was there. I remember when Ann Miller, I mentioned earlier, started writing in English about French language avant-garde comics of the 1990s. And I was like taken aback. I was like, hey, lady, like this is mine. Like I, I write about French comics and somebody else started writing about Germany. I'm like, I have Germany too and Italy. And like, I have an entire continent. I am the one that will write about this continent. And I'm like, no, you're not allowed to have all these things. You can't have Portugal. You don't even speak Portuguese. I'm like, no, no, I, I want it. I want this, this space because nobody else was out there for a long, long time. And that's really 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 exciting for a lot of people a lot of my students i think get terrified of it they're like well hold on where is the path how do you go down this mountain how do you navigate through these trees if we don't have i have students emailing me all the time oh i wanted to write about scott pilgrim i can't find any anything that's been written about it i'm like isn't that great like aren't you excited you'd be the first person to write about this book and they're like, no 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 i want to be able to cite these other things and see what people have said about it and be in dialogue with them i'm like no be in dialogue with people that are writing about you know gen x literature generally and then you know you, you can take it over to this um and that's what's great about comic uh scholarship is just that that huge sense of possibility where you're just like wow i can't believe now finally someone finally wrote a book about art spiegelman it's like Wow, that took a long time. Somebody's finally written about it. Whereas in, in film studies, I thought, you know, I once thought I'd write a book about the Coen brothers, and there's eight. And I'm like, oh, I don't want to write the ninth book about the Coen brothers. Like, it's uh, these people haven't said exactly what I would say, but I feel like uh, it's not really that imperative. And in uh, comic studies, yeah, you could be the first to write about almost anyone. It's, uh, you know, almost any monograph you want to write, any artist that you want to pick off your shelf and you're like well you'd be the first person to write about i'm just looking at my shelf here sarah glidden or tom gold or 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 there's just nothing about any of these people um there's a few 
Spiegelmans and Hergé's and others that have been well written about, but for the most part, no. And so, yeah, that's what gets me excited is when I see somebody, I go to a conference and I'm like, oh, this person's writing about something that no one else has done. Uh, you know, they're, they're writing about Dell comics, Dell crime comics of the early 1960s. I'm like, oh, that's great. Nobody's written anything about that. I'm gonna go learn something. I know I'm gonna learn something uh, about that because there's just so, so much that we haven't bothered to deal with yet. Yeah. Bart Beatty, University of Calgary, professor, teacher of comics, lover of comics. Thank you so much for joining me for this video cast. Oh, thanks for having me, Frederick. It's been a real pleasure.